This is episode 231 of IDRA Class Notes. I truly believe that Justice Brown Jackson is going to make a tremendous difference in the history and trajectory of the Supreme Court, particularly when it comes to education and the law. Certainly, folks are not holding back any punches, attacking her views on topics that we are struggling with as a nation around inclusive education. All of that being said, though, I'm really excited that she's there at the court who will really bring that perspective and that experience to sort of bring balance and sanity to the court's conversations about these issues. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the IDRA Class Notes podcast. I'm Paige Duggins-Clay, IDRA's Chief Legal Analyst. We are continuing our series of episodes on education and the law, where we unpack the stories of youth, educators, and advocates in our nation's landmark civil rights and education cases. Joining me on the podcast today is truly one of the most delightful people in the entire world, Thomas Marshall, IDRA's Policy Communications Strategist. Welcome, Thomas. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Paige. Thank you for being here, Thomas. What do you want to talk about today? Well, now that we're on the other side of Election Day, I thought maybe now would be a really great time to check in with the so-called apolitical branch of our government, the courts, and specifically the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I've been listening on the news and I keep hearing about how the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decisions have directly contributed to some of the political races and results around the country. So I just thought, Paige, I would ask you, what's up with the U.S. Supreme Court? What are some of the cases we should be paying attention to with respect to educational equity? Oh my gosh, what a fabulous idea. It's almost as if we plan to have this conversation today. Yes. I'm so excited to unpack this with you. It's a super important question and very timely, as you pointed out. As everyone knows, the U.S. Supreme Court is made up of nine justices who are each nominated by the president to serve a lifetime term. Over the last 50 years, the balance of power based on ideology of the U.S. Supreme Court has swung back and forth like a pendulum largely in response to the political and social issues of our time and each generation. This court is no different. In terms of education outcomes, the height of the Supreme Court's positive power and influence over educational equity arguably came with the landmark decision of Brown v. Board of Education, which, as our regular listeners know, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. You can check out the podcast where we unpack that. Absolutely. No, that was a really great podcast to listen to and definitely very historic. Paige, did the Supreme Court have any gifts for us to honor Brown's 50th anniversary? (laughs) Gifts, indeed. I guess it certainly depends on your perspective. We'll talk about uh, at the end of this podcast session on Halloween, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case grounded in the historic Brown decision. Um, And yes, I'm referring to the affirmative action cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. We'll have more about that later. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a relatively bleak time for social justice advocates in the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll spend a few minutes at the beginning of this episode recapping what happened at the end of the Supreme Court's last term and then use that framework to preview what we at IDRA are watching and concerned about on the court's current docket. But before diving into that conversation, I do want to highlight something truly extraordinary and worth celebrating. In other words, a gift, just like you previewed, Thomas. On June 30th, 2022, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson took the bench as our nation's very first Black woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Over 200 years of American history, this has never happened before. As a Black female lawyer myself, 
I cannot fully convey the breathtaking beauty of that moment of watching her take her oath of office as her sweet daughter looked on. Despite all of the coordinated, well-funded efforts to dismantle the promise of Brown and other cases advancing the rights of our nation's historically marginalized communities, it could not stop this bend of justice. To quote another iconic figure, nevertheless, she persisted. Absolutely, Paige. Now, thank you so much for drawing that out. That was a beautiful, historic day, a really great moment for our American history. I remember watching as well, getting getting the chills from, from seeing that confirmation. So definitely thank you for, for spilling that out. How do you think Justice Brown Jackson's presence will impact the decisions and actions of the Supreme Court? You know, I truly believe, and I am an optimist, but, but I really think this is going to be true. I really believe that Justice Brown Jackson is going to make a tremendous difference in the history and trajectory of the Supreme Court, particularly when it comes to education and the law. Here's some fun facts about her. Justice Brown Jackson is the daughter of two graduates of historically Black colleges. Her father was an attorney who ultimately became the chief attorney for the Miami-Dade County School Board, one of the largest districts in Florida. Her mother was a public school teacher who worked in the South throughout integration, throughout the era implementing Brown. To say that she has a perspective on education and the law would be an understatement. And here's just another fun fact. She's quoted in her high school yearbook as saying that she always wanted to go into law and eventually have a judicial appointment and look at her now. To put it simply, this lady knows her stuff and I really think she's gonna be making a significant impact. All of that being said though, these you know, shenanigans already happened as part of her confirmation proceedings. Certainly, folks are, are not holding back any punches, attacking her legitimacy as a justice, her views on topics that we are struggling with as a nation around inclusive education, inclusive curriculum, fights for culturally responsive education. And so I'm really excited that she's there at the court who will really bring that perspective and that experience to sort of hopefully bring balance and sanity, frankly to the court's conversations about these issues. And we already saw that happen as part of the affirmative action cases that we heard about earlier on the podcast. Absolutely. And, and we're going to get to a little bit more of that, you know, education pieces and kind of what's happening around the country. Paige, do you mind walking us through what happened last term and what the court's most recent decisions might mean for the future of educational equity? Absolutely. Listeners, I think if you're a person in America and you listen to a podcast, there's no doubt, you know, there's been some seismic changes in our constitutional law as a result of the Supreme Court's decisions last term. So let me just start before we'll walk through a couple of these, you know, big cases that really impact how we're thinking about civil rights law and education law, particularly. But let me just offer first some big picture, you know, takeaways from what we learned from last term. The first is that, unfortunately, there's really seems to be less concern with the quote unquote legitimacy of the court as an institution, despite the statements by, you know, the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts and, and others, you know, advocates who are in the Supreme Court and around the Supreme Court, you know, polls and really comments it shows that a lot of what's happening at the Supreme Court is really undermining the public's confidence and its ability to be impartial, to be apolitical, which we foreshadowed at the very beginning. And what do we mean by that? What's the evidence of that? Well, part of the part of the reason that folks are feeling that way is because this Supreme Court, perhaps more than any other, has demonstrated a willingness to revisit and, in fact, overturn decades of settled precedent and furtherance of, you know, frankly, far right, really minority viewpoints and interests. For example, issues like affirmative action and others that we'll walk through today. 
Another sticking point that calls into question our ability to have faith and impartiality in this court is that it's really becoming clear that the justices' individual religious viewpoints are impacting and in some cases guiding decision-making. We'll see that in the rollback of what has been uh, since the founding of this nation, uh, bedrock principles of separation of church and state. We'll see in this term a real retreat from those uh, well-settled principles. Another sort of interesting things, which many podcasts have talked about, we won't go into detail here. A lot of law nerds really geek out on this, but it's worth noting that the shadow docket exists. And that sounds very ominous. What do I mean by that? The shadow docket is the popular name for what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court that's not sort of the marquee headline opinions, right? These are ordinary orders, a decision to grant a case in the Supreme Court and hear it, a decision to per curiam without hearing argument, to just issue an opinion without um, inviting folks to come and make their case, decisions to stay or overturn a stay in cases like voting rights cases. We saw that happening a lot in the election this year, the Supreme Court really having an impact on the availability of voting rights protections for states, particularly in the South. So we're really seeing that shadow docket decision-making creep in, and and that really, again, contributes to folks' feeling that the Supreme Court is not being fully transparent, that it's not acting with integrity, because rather than sort of bringing those cases out in the open, hearing arguments, making decisions in the shadows. So we're keeping an eye on that as well. And then finally, and this is probably the most important point, and it will continue to impact how we think about the Supreme Court for certainly for the you know this generation of legal advocates and, and beyond, is that there's really an increased reliance on this concept of originalism. And so you'll hear that a lot. I'll talk to you a little bit about what that means when we talk about some of these cases. But it's this view that the only way that we are supposed to, as judges, as lawyers, as the public, to view constitutional rights is through the lens of the original founding, quote unquote, fathers. Uh, Now, that's just Thomas shaking your head. Yeah. I mean, it's a deeply problematic on so many reasons, which I think are readily apparent, particularly considering the fact that most of the population today would not be included in concepts of citizen or person even, right, as the original founding fathers. Of course, African-American people being considered only three-fourths of a person and women not having the franchise at all. And so deeply problematic, but nonetheless keeps showing up in this court's jurisprudence. Absolutely. No, thank you, Paige, for the way you're bringing out some really deep concepts and some some interesting principles that the courts have decided to to guide themselves on. Um, I'm interested on what are some of the really specific cases that you've kind of drawn these principles from and some ways that education is being impacted in this sense. Absolutely. We'll see this originalism thread running through all four of the cases that I'm just going to highlight for you today. So the first, and this is really bringing together the first two cases we'll talk about are highlighting both originalism and this concern that we have around the separation of church and state. And they both happen to be in the context of education. Of course, our nation's schools always being, for better or for worse, a central place where like social conflicts and societal issues sort of bubble up. So in the first one, Carson v. Macon, the Supreme Court was asked, it sounds like a relatively simple question. Does a state violate the religion clause, which is, of course, in the First Amendment, or the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, by prohibiting an otherwise generally available student aid program from choosing to use their aid to attend schools that provide religious or sectarian instruction? Now, that's drawn from the briefs that were filed in the Supreme Court. What are they really asking? Well, in Carson v. Macon, 
The issue was whether a state that already affirmatively offered a voucher program, right, a program where they allowed state funds to go to private schools to allow certain kids to attend private schools, was required under the Constitution to allow students attending private religious schools to participate. Historically, schools for decades have have said, look, it's a violation of the principles of church and state for us to give public money, which comes from all sorts of people and all sorts of backgrounds and religions to support any one religion. And that's not what we're going to do, particularly in the context of uh, sectarian education. That principle had over the last decade been eroded in a previous Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court made clear you can't just deny a school the ability to participate in a program like this just because it's religious. And so in the wake of that decision, which was a couple of years ago, states took up a different principle, which again was very sensible. Okay, we won't discriminate on the basis of any religious character of a school, but to the extent that a school is providing religious instruction and education in any particular faith, sect, doctrine, we're not going to fund that. We are in the business of funding math, reading, science, education, not any particular uh, establishment of religion. And that is going to be a disqualifying factor from receiving funds under Mm -hmm. our programs. The Supreme Court was asked to evaluate in Carson v. Macon whether that principle withstood the Constitution. There was decades, again, of precedent supporting this principle. And frankly, this court just ran right through it. In that case, uh, the court reaffirmed, really importantly, the one of the most important takeaways from this case for advocates of fair school funding and educational equity, states have no obligation whatsoever to fund voucher programs for private schools. So it's very, very important to note, very good language there. But it ultimately ruled that when states do choose to subsidize private education, they cannot exclude schools just because they provide religious instruction And they totally ignored. I mean, when you think about like the human rights impact of this decision, right, the civil rights impact, the court totally disregarded evidence in this record. And what we all know, just, you know, from our common sense living in America, that the plaintiffs in this case, the plaintiff schools, private religious schools, can actually discriminate on all kinds of students and their employees. In fact, the schools in this case have policies that deny enrollment to students based on their gender, their gender identity, their sexual orientation status, and their religion. In one of these schools, they actually required their employees to be, quote, born again Christians. This is contrary to our civil rights law, right? If you're going to be receiving public money, that entity should not be allowed to discriminate against anyone, whether it's their employees or students. And really is a slap in the face for the taxpayers of that state where, you know, you had Muslim, atheist, uh, Catholic, all sorts of religious backgrounds putting their hard-earned taxpayer dollars into the system and then being required to take those tax dollars to subsidize a faith that they may or may not, you know, practice or believe in. Deeply problematic, the Supreme Court nonetheless issued this new rule. And so we'll be thinking about that case going forward. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's it's really interesting the way you, you built this out page of how this can lead to discrimination and some really bad things. And so no, I think it's important to kind of think about the future implications of some of these cases. Um, I know you have two more. Tell us about some of the other ones. Absolutely. In a very related case, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, The Supreme Court was asked to side, again, sort of under the same principles, the First Amendment, religious separation of church and state, a question, which was whether a school employee here, a coach, uh, had the right to publicly engage in a prayer on school grounds. So here, the middle of a football field, there's a lot of great photos and media about this. 
um, which you can actually see an IDRA statement about this opinion. And whether that sort of demonstration of the religious background um, is permissible under the First Amendment. The issue here is, again, this is a high school football coach. Thomas, you and I are from Texas, <laughs> in Texas and in many places, right? Football is king. These are people who have a lot of influence, a lot of control and power over families and over kids. For many kids, this is a pathway to higher education and just, you know, a huge social part of the fabric of schools. And so really organizing these events on the 50-yard line, there was a lot of evidence in the record that showed that there were plenty of kids who did not share the same religion as this coach, but nonetheless felt pressured and you know coerced to participate in these demonstrations because they were worried that if they did it, they might be benched or they might not have the same sort of favoritism to get access to a favorable recommendation or reviewing the tapes, right? The connections that coaching staff can come with. And there are also safety concerns. These prayers became such sort of a media spotlight because this coach was very prominent in how he was handling it, that reporters were swimming the field and fans were coming in. There was evidence that students were getting knocked over. Athletic trainers were being, you know, cheerleaders were being scattered. Um, and this really wasn't a safe environment. And so for those reasons, the school said, look, you can have your brief, quiet prayer. You can go off to the side. You can do it privately, but you can't do it in this public way for all these reasons. Supreme Court, again, building on this principle of, of church and state, or rather detracting from it, said that that was discrimination against the coach on the basis of his religion. So again, another step backwards in terms of the separation of church and state. And um, what we're really thinking about going forward is, what does this actually mean for schools? Can educators now lead prayers in their classrooms? And is that going to create a space that's conducive to learning and to equity and learning, making a safe environment for everyone, regardless of their religious background? And of course, that sort of decision applies broadly. It's not just in public schools. It applies to the public, uh, public employees at large. And so I'm sure we'll see further um, cases sort of dealing with the gray areas of this decision going forward. Absolutely. You know, I, again, you, you talk about how these cases are opening the door for more questions and a lot of things that our, our teachers and educators and folks in, in the field are going to have to kind of grapple with based on the course decisions. And so the last one that you're going to speak of around the New York State, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so we've got New York State and we'll talk quickly about the Dobbs decision, which I've saved the most controversial potentially ones for last. Let's talk about New York State Rifle Association. We've been talking about this concept of originalism, right? And here is a case where it really sort of shows the nonsensicalness, frankly, of this approach to judicial decision-making. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the Rifle Association filed suit against the state of New York, challenging a 100-year-old law in New York. Again, you're seeing the theme, well-settled law had not been challenged, had been upheld many times, 100 years and that law specified that a person who wants to carry a firearm outside of their home can get a license to do it, um, but you have to have a license, so you have to be registered, right? And you got to be able to show in order to get that license, proper cause. In other words, if you're going to carry a gun that's not for pure self-defense out of your home, you got to tell the state of New York why you need it, and you got to be licensed and make the state aware of that. And you got to have a special need for self-protection. And this is a law that has been passed in several other states. Very common sense in terms of making sure that folks are being thoughtful about the reasons that they're carrying these weapons around our society. 
What does this have to do with schools? Well, let's unpack that. The Rifle Association argued that this was a violation of their Second Amendment rights, that the state of New York had no business asking about or requiring these sorts of licenses for firearms, um, and that a proper cause requirement violated the 14th Amendment by prohibiting people from engaging in self-defense at all times, basically. What happened, you can probably guess based on the tone (laughs) of this podcast, the court affirmed The court rejected this argument that the state made in terms of saying that it was a really important public safety measure, that they were well within their constitutional rights to do it, instead saying that it violated these citizens' constitutional rights, undermining that law, which again had been on the books for over 100 years, uh, noted that there were five other states that are likely going to have to change their laws as a result of this decision. And it really changed the standard for how we evaluate uh, Second Amendment rights and interpretation and creates a lot of uncertainty. So when, if ever, can a state regulate how citizens can obtain firearms, what training requirements, what registration requirements, right, really opens the floodgates to challenging sort of, again, common sense, very important sort of threshold requirements for ensuring safety. And really, I think in this moment, you know, right before this opinion was issued, the tragedy in Uvalde happened, right, which is very close to us in Texas and and impacted people all over the country. Really, really horrific that the court would fail to consider the implications of this, you know, ruling on public safety more broadly in schools specifically. I'll give one caveat. The court did affirm a constitutionality of state laws that prohibit guns in, quote, sensitive places and mentioned in a footnote, uh, schools, government buildings, courthouses, polling places. So very conveniently, all the places where the judges show up. And But schools were on that list, right? And so I think the future of this litigation will really focus on what is happening in those sensitive places. School safety is widely important and especially something we care a lot about here at IDAT Ray. So it's very unfortunately time from the courts to decide on that. Our last one, really, really one that everyone has really heard about, the Dobbs case, of course, but really interested to hear about what this would mean for public schools. Yeah, thanks, Thomas, for that. And this is, I think, uh, just a sad place to end because this case has a lot of implications, not only for the constitutional rights of uh, women in the United States, but also for the constitutional rights of so many other people. And I'll, I'll tell you why about that in just a second. This case is perhaps the poster child for people viewing the court as illegitimate, overturning a 50-year-old precedent, almost 50-year-old. I think uh, Roe versus Wade would be 50 in February 2023, you know, really building towards this moment. You know, won't go too far in the weeds here, but, you know, long story short, the question presented was whether women have the constitutional right to privacy, which includes the right to access an abortion within particular time periods during their pregnancy. And the U.S. Supreme Court, I think unsurprisingly for many folks tracking this issue, decided that the answer to that question was no, reversing again, nearly 50-year-old settled precedent, relying purportedly on this originalism context and framework. And I think the the dissenting justices in this case did a very excellent job highlighting the ways in that the analysis was really flawed. You know, one of the things that Justice Sotomayor wrote when she was dissenting from the majority opinion was opening that dissent with the line, with sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection. We dissent. 
We, of course, are always very mindful at IDRA of any time that the Supreme Court takes action curtailing a settled constitutional right, whatever it may be, because it signals, you know, again, a willingness to revisit many others. And in fact, in this opinion alone, one of the other justices on the court, Clarence Thomas, who wrote a concurring opinion to this outcome, actually wrote a couple of sentences totally (laughs) unsolicited suggesting that this court should not stop with the Roe versus Wade decision, that it should undermine all of the case law flowing from what's called the court's substantive due process jurisprudence. And so cases that flow from the 14th Amendment's due process clause, which includes some really notable ones, Griswold, which is an opinion about a family's right to privacy and access to contraception, Lawrence v. Texas, which is a Texas case holding that the it's unlawful to criminalize being in a non-heterosexual relationship, and Obergefell recognizing the constitutional right to a marriage equality. Notably absent from his uh, his uh, dissent was reference to uh, Loving versus Virginia, which also uh, is based at least in part on the 14th Amendment substantive due process jurisprudence in which the Supreme Court said that you could be in an interracial marriage between a black person and a white person or any other race, notably Justice Thomas married to a white woman. Again, I I flag this to say when people are thinking about the skepticism around the court and the really sort of self-serving interests that seem to be coming from some of these justices, this is sort of exhibit A. What does this decision mean for public schools? Um, Well, a whole host of things. Again, we're looking at the future of cases and how the court's going to continue to treat bedrock constitutional principles like affirmative action, for example. You can go listen to our podcast where we unpack what's at stake in that case. And in addition, there's going to be real impacts on the teacher workforce. For example, you know, the teacher workforce is overwhelmingly female and many of the teachers that work in our public schools are women and parents or pregnancy and making decisions about their health care and their families sure to have an impact on our teacher workforce. It's also likely to have an impact on our students, right? Uh, Students become pregnant all the time. And in many cases, we know that the adverse impacts of childhood pregnancy can be very challenging. How we support kids who are no longer going to have access to this kind of health care in places across the South, like Texas, like Georgia and elsewhere, is going to be a really critical point. Uh, and not only, you know, getting access to health care, but all the attendant issues that come with requiring and forcing, you know, anyone, especially a young person, to carry a child to term, child care, health care, insurance, postpartum care, mental health care, right? Things that we know that our states and our nation are just abysmally poor at doing. So that is really the state of where we are. Nonetheless, we persist, right? And, um, you know, there are some some cases on the docket this term that will continue to challenge our current concepts of justice and equity. And we'll be back with another podcast uh, soon to unpack what else the court is thinking about this term. Absolutely. And I know this is a lot to take in, in terms of the information and can be sometimes sorrowful, but I, I appreciate the the persistence that you leave us off with. And I think that's a, that's a really beautiful note for us to think about as we're doing this work of advocates. Um, but thank you again for walking us through all of that page. You did a masterful job. Um, we're almost out of time, but perhaps you wanted to talk about a couple of the cases that are going to be happening in the court's current term. 
Yeah, we can unpack these in a future podcast. But just to give us a preview, last month, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the affirmative action cases. IDRA led an, an amicus brief, as our listeners know, in that case. And so we're watching that one very carefully for all of its implications. Another uh, interesting racial justice case that was just heard last week was a case about the Indian Child Welfare Act which involves the rights of Native American communities to have access to and protections for the integrity of their family. That law is also at risk based on some litigation out of Texas. And that's really important because the way that the court approaches the question of whether a statute can sort of be, you know, affirmatively cognizant of race or ethnicity or origin um, is going to have implications for other, you know, statutory interpretation cases. So we're watching that very carefully. And then, you know, several others, which we'll unpack in future episodes, we will have a session debriefing on these in the future. And you can always learn more about these cases, the court's last term, and find resources about how to continue to pursue educational equity in the face of potentially adverse Supreme Court decisions on our website and in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much, Paige. I'd like to say that Paige is the most delightful person in the world in, instead of me, as <laughs> she said at the front. But no, thank you again for listening to another episode of our Class Notes podcast and listening to another rendition of our Education in the Law series. We hope to hear from you soon. And thank you so much, Paige. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.